All right, you can grab a seat. Can I say I missed you guys the last couple weeks? And I don't mean that like generally. Um, I went on a 17-mile bike ride yesterday through our city and just, I love our city. But man, I love you guys. Like, it's not the same to me to worship Jesus and not see Teresa or Renee or Scott. Like, I love you and I have genuinely, we have missed you the last couple of weeks. I don't want to follow Jesus without you guys. Um, And so it's good to see you. Uh, I want to thank Ed for the message he brought two weeks ago. I I heard such good things uh, immediately right after church. Like I'll be sitting at, I think I was sitting at lunch and like I start getting blown up with, man, that was a great message. The Lord really spoke through Ed. Uh, And then last week, Renee texted me and said, hey, Cody's on your heels, man. He was like, Cody's on your heels. He's pretty good. And so uh, Renee reminded me I got to stay on my preaching game here. Uh, But uh, I'm so grateful that Cody came. Cody texted me immediately. I think he was the first one to text me after worship. And he said, I love your church. He's, uh, he said, we've taken some of the people, I think a guy named Juan came with him. Some of you might have met Juan. And he said, you know, Juan's gone to another one of Cody's partner churches up that's at the, the mall up in Beverly Peabody. And he said he just couldn't, Juan couldn't conceptualize starting a church after going to this really large church at a mall. And um, he said, but your people, he said, they knew each other. They loved each other. It was obvious they loved this neighborhood. They sang. There was no pretense. It was just, we're here to follow Christ together. And, and Cody was like, man, that was, that was a gift to me. And, um, and so thank you for being on your best behavior. Whatever, whoever was here, whatever you did, thank you. It, it like certainly encouraged him. Um, and thanks to Nick to holding it down. Like, uh, and like building a wall. Yeah, you can clap for Nick. That's okay. Um, it is a gift. Like, so I got to be in Nick and Nikki's former church last week and thank them for giving away two of their best. I got to be in the church that Kayla came out of two weeks ago and thank them for giving their best. A church isn't known by how much it, how many gather or even how much money it collects or what it does in the community. The ultimate test of the kingdom mindedness of a church is will they send away their best? Um, and so those churches did, and I hope one day we're in a position to do a lot of that. I want to tell you, we're in the middle of a series called Untended Fires. Nick, by the way, told me I had to recalibrate the slides to this skinnier angle. So I'm going to look back and see if I got it right here in a little bit. I hope I did it right. Um, good. I did the math. My mom was a math teacher for 37 years. And so Nick gave me these dimensions. It was like, no, it needs to be 1080 by some number. And I like was trying to summon my inner Beverly Mangrum to do the proportion to get it right um, for today. So hopefully it's clear enough that you can see it. And um, this is awesome. Like this wall is awesome. It feels like we're in a cave a little bit this morning uh, and it's changed the sound, but Thank you to Nick for doing all this. Like He was like, man, the church is going to look different. When you get back, it's going to look different, and it certainly does. Uh, we're in James, a series called Intended Fires. If you don't tend to fire, it, it just burns to the ground. There's some fires in our life that we need to let burn out. There's some fires in our life we need to, 
let be stoked up. And so James is, if you've been here over the last couple of months, is essentially a letter to some Christians who were scattered throughout the Roman Empire. They had all been as the people of God in one city, Jerusalem, and they got scattered out throughout the Roman Empire. And James is writing them a letter and saying, as you're in a new city, as your refugees, like many Afghans will become in the next few months, here's how it's going to look for you to follow Christ in these new places. And so uh, that's kind of our framework as we are talking through. I'm going to try to honor the time today. I know I'm getting up here a little bit late. I may just cut out some of my notes if we need to, but I want you to hear what we got to say. I have friends who do, uh, one friend here in the city, he, he and his wife organized something called the Big Move. Uh, September 1st, 70% of leases come up in Boston. And so they bring in three to 400 volunteers on September 1st to help people move in and out of apartments, uh, particularly over, over um, near Northeastern and BU and in that part of the city. I have another friend uh, who has a side hustle immigration, who's a side hustle immigration advocate. He went, he lives over in Everett, Chelsea area, went and got all the training and certification to help people process their immigration papers. He gives about five hours a week to help people become citizens who are here right now as undocumented immigrants. Uh, I have another friend uh, who has created a business that gets micro loans for women who want to be entrepreneurs. Uh, and so she teaches a series of financial classes, and at the end of it, they essentially play something like Shark Tank, and women get different loans for uh, to start their own businesses. I have a friend who... Um, in an, in an under-resourced neighborhood, cre- uh, got this big trailer and bought a bunch of equipment. Uh, he put grills in there and sort of like, you know, like cornhole boards and stuff for like a cookout and a big block party, but also equipment to fix bikes. And he'll go into under-resourced neighborhood parks once a month and they'll have a big block party and they'll repair bikes, pump up tires, Uh, you know, fix chains, do whatever needs to be done. And you can go and volunteer. And at the end of, after you get so many hours, you can get a free bike, but you have to donate hours. You have to come flip burgers or play with kids or fix these bikes. Uh, I have another friend um, who organizes a food co-op. I have a friend who organizes urban gardens, who literally goes into under-resourced neighborhoods, finds empty plots of land, and will uh, has an employment program for teenagers where they manage urban gardens. They got their own food truck and uh, are able to sell stuff at, a, at different community spots. I know of people who run a Christmas market. So rather than giving away stuff for Christmas, they get a bunch of stuff and they sell it for a dime on the dollar so that moms and dads, rather than get presents that they couldn't afford for their kids, can actually go to this market and buy something for 10 cents that would cost a dollar, something for $5 that would cost $50, so that the mom and dad on Christmas morning can know that they bought the gifts for their kids. Um, I think these are amazing things. These are all Christians. Only two of the ones I just mentioned are pastors. Most of these people are people who sit in the pews and not behind the pulpit on Sunday morning, and every one of them does it to share and embody the gospel. The most incredible story I ever heard was about a couple of women at a church. Uh, I, know the, I know the pastor. I don't know the women uh, who heard a message like I'm about to share with you today and got really burdened for a strip club in their town, and they went and they knocked on the door of the strip club, and the bouncer, who really cared for these women, uh, said, who, who is it? Why are you here? And they said, we're here in the name of Jesus to love these women. And the bouncer literally like, and, uh, and so essentially these Christian women 
got all the birthdays of these women who work at the strip club and they would bring them care baskets, large like care baskets on their birthdays and begin to minister to these women, all in the name of Jesus. I think this is incredible stuff. It's stuff people are doing with the gospel to embody the gospel in their place. And so let me just start with a question today. If money were no issue for you and time were less of an issue for you, and you knew that you could impact the world for the sake of the gospel, what would you do? What would be your thing? And I want to just let that, you know how sometimes, I don't know if your brains work like this, sometimes my brain is half listening to the preacher and then also half thinking about something else. If you're half thinking about something else, brain is thinking about something else this morning, I want it to be that. Like if money were no issue and time were less of an issue, What would I be doing? Now, let me read to you a couple of verses from James 1 and then a few verses from James 2 today, if we might. Uh, James 1, 26 and 27 say this. If anyone thinks he's religious and doesn't bridle his tongue, this is kind of what Ed talked about a couple of weeks ago. If anyone thinks he's religious and doesn't bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Now, we talk about religion and relationship a lot around here. Religion in the sense of if I do things to get to God, um, that is bad. We We would advocate for there's no way we can get to God. God is holy, right? And so we need God to come to us, and thankfully he did in Christ. So what we advocate for is relationship. I love that Nicole and Howard just happen to be sitting by each other because they're the drum beaters for, I was never told I could have a relationship with God. Having a relationship with God is better with religion. But James isn't talking when he says religion here in the next verse about doing something to please God. What he's talking about is because God is pleased with us and we have relationship with him, there are now things that we do. And so when James says religion, he's not saying, okay, Ari, hope, if you will do these things, then God's going to be happy with you. What he's saying is, because Christ is in your life, there are things that you are going to do, and these are the things that will verify your faith. In other words, an apple tree is going to grow apples, and that verifies that it's an apple tree. Natalie's mom has a pear tree in the backyard. They, never, they always just fall to the ground every year and rot. And Natalie went out there and goes, Mom, you know you got good pears out here. And she made a pear pie. If we didn't know what kind of tree it was, every summer it proves that it's a pear tree because it's dropping perfectly good pears that rot. Um, our faith ought to be producing certain things. And James says, if someone says they're a Christian but they can't bridle their tongue, their religion is worthless. And then he says this in verse 27. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows and their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. James says, listen, um, a good religion, here, I'm going to get to this in a minute. I'll go to chapter 2, chapter 2, verses 14 through uh, 26. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone says he has faith but he doesn't have works Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things that are needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have your faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I'll show you my faith by my works. You believe God is one. 
You do well. Even the demons believe and they shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Wasn't Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? Verse 22. You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, wasn't also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Now, in the Old Testament, in the Jewish scriptures, there were three things that the people of God were commanded to do as good religion kind of over and over. And the Old Testament's got all kinds of laws. We know the Ten Commandments. We know of the, hopefully, the command to love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Uh, we know of the other Old Testament command that Jesus says is equally the most important command to love your neighbor as yourself. The Old Testament has all kinds of scriptures and commands, but three things that the Old Testament commanded people of God to do often were to look after orphans, the fatherless, to look after widows, and to look after what the scriptures called the alien or the immigrant living among them. This was commanded of God's people. It was literally how God wanted his people to set themselves apart from the other nations around them. Now, James writes in verse 27, he says, look, you got to bridle your tongue in verse 26. 27, he says, keep yourself from being unstained by the world and look after orphans and widows. Well, why doesn't he say look after the alien? Because there were no immigrants for these people in the Roman Empire. They were the immigrant. They were the immigrant as he's writing. And so he's talking about good religion. And they would have all said, oh, they would have been reading this letter out loud and said, oh, look after orphans and widows. And they would have said, and the alien or and the immigrant or and the stranger. But he doesn't say that because it wasn't their scenario. They were the immigrant. There might come a day in 20 years where that was going to be their struggle, but it wasn't their local predicament right here. Which leads to a really important question. What is our local predicament? James is writing to them something very specific. He's saying, here are the things that are broken where you are. There are kids now because of this moving around the empire who don't have parents anymore. They're orphaned on the trip. There are now widows. There are women whose husbands have died. They've been persecuted, martyred. Look after them as the people of God. And he says, there's good religion. There's good religion. Remember, religion is not something that makes God love us. It's something that verifies that we are loved by God. And he says there are three marks of good religion. One, he says, a tame tongue. A tame tongue is a, good, is a mark of good religion. If my mouth is just a loose cannon, that's not a good witness. Uh, second one, he says, is ministering hands, looking after orphans and widows and their distress. And then the third one, he says, is a pure heart. Tame tongue, ministering hands, pure heart. He says, keep yourselves unstained or un, um, from being made impure by the world. If James wrote to us, what would he say we are to do to validate our faith, to set ourselves apart as the people of God? What would be our local predicament and our good religion? Now, let me go through a few of these verses really fast. <laughs> really fast. Uh, 
number one, uh, in verses 14 through 16, when you get into chapter two, you got to understand he's writing to Christians. He says, what good is it, my brothers? So James is writing to Christians. And then look at verse 15. He's writing about Christians. He says, what good is it if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food? James understood, and I think this is not taught enough in churches today, that ministering to needs begins in the church. If Drew has a need and someone in the community has a need, the biblical precedent is actually to make sure we care for Drew before we care for someone in the community. We live in this world where social justice and like doing works of compassion has really bled into a church, but I don't know that we've gotten a truly biblical gospel-centered framework for social justice sometimes. And so I think sometimes churches will give more resources out serving people who don't yet know Christ when kind of if we go through and we read the New Testament, what, we're, what we ought to be doing is caring for our own first. This is the biblical precedent. Um, we are commanded to do that. And James is writing to Christians about Christians. Part of good religion is making sure that there's no needs in here before we go make sure there's no needs out there. And, um, and I'm really passionate about that. That's why we have a form on the top of our website. If you have a need, you can fill it out really anonymously. Only one person gets the email and we'll help you. Like we're here to help. If you run out of health insurance, or you have a home need, or there's something amiss, and you are part of Christ Church Charlestown. It is the biblical command that we care for one another first and well. And James is talking about that. In verse 17, he goes on and he says, so faith by itself, if it doesn't have works, is dead. If there's a big idea today, it's this. I think we've got a slide for it. Works do not justify, works verify. To be justified, when the Bible talks about we're justified by Christ, it's a legal term. It means to be declared not guilty. To be declared not guilty. And so when God looks at the person who has given their life to Christ, who has asked Christ to forgive their sins, asked Christ to come live in them, asked Christ to be the Lord of their life, God then says, oh, not guilty, not guilty, you're not guilty. He will never hold our sin against us. He took the punishment out for out on Christ at the cross, and we are declared not guilty. So good works do not justify. If I've given my life to Christ, and then I go serve at the homeless shelter this afternoon, serving at the homeless shelter does not make God more happy with me legally than if I don't. He is as happy with me, and I am as forgiven and pleased in Christ regarding salvation as I will ever be. I cannot add anything to it. I cannot take anything away from it. So works do not justify me before God. But good works, good religion, do verify my faith. It's the pears on the pear tree. It's the apples on the apple tree when we... Show we have a tame tongue when we have ministering hands, when we have a pure heart. It's verifying our faith. Some denominations are going to tell you that you have to have faith plus works. You have to have faith in Christ, and you have to do some stuff. You have to go to church. You have to give money. You have to, um, you have to receive communion. You have to be baptized. There's all kinds of stuff. We know of one denomination where if you're not baptized within a certain amount of hours of giving your life to Christ, then didn't take, you're going to hell, forget it, you stay game over. 
This is crazy. Anytime that you get a faith plus anything, that is a false gospel. There's a lot of people in our community and in our city who really believe that they have to give their life to Christ plus do some other stuff. And if they don't do some other stuff, then God is not happy with them and they may not even have relationship with God. And that's not true. The scripture says it is faith alone. Salvation is by faith in Christ alone. Works do not justify. Works verify. But here's the next thing I want to tell you. Works follow faith. Works follow faith. It's like the pulse verifying that there's life. When there's good religion, a tame tongue, ministering hands, a pure heart, it verifies that we have life in Christ. A good person, James gives this scenario where there's this good person who says, oh, I believe in God. I'm a good person. I do stuff. And here's what James says. You show me your faith by just, you show me that you know God by your confession that you believe in God and you do good things. And he says, I'll show you my faith by what I believe and by what I do. My works verify my faith. And, and so can't you just, I can literally just hear this argument in Boston today. Somebody saying, oh, I believe in God. Like how many of you know people who, if you were to ask them, are they religious? They would say, oh yeah, I believe in God. I know very few atheists. I have a couple of true atheist friends who literally believe nothing. And it's incredible. Like, I would just want to poke and prod and be like, why do you believe this? Why do you not believe this? How can you not see this? This takes a lot of faith to believe in this. And, you know, it's just amazing to me. Most people would say, yeah, I believe in God. I know people in our church who will say, oh, man, I love that person. He believes in God. Let me tell you who else believes in God, according to James. The demons the demons believe in God. And they, James says, get like cold chills on their back when his name is uttered. So believing in God is not the best litmus test for whether someone is a true believer. Even the demons of hell believe in God. James would say, no, 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 no. That's not enough. And he gives two examples. And I think it's interesting, the examples James gives us from the Old Testament. The first one's Abraham. The second one's Rahab. He does not give the example of, like, let's go down the Ten Commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. You should keep the Sabbath day holy. Don't take my name in vain. No idols. Honor your mom and dad. Uh, don't murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't lie. Don't uh, steal. Don't, what's the other one? Don't covet. Like, he doesn't do that. He lists Abraham as the first example of living faith. Abraham, who took his son, his only son Isaac, his son who he loved, and at God's command, laid him on the altar as if he were going to sacrifice him. And at the last moment, God stepped in and said, Abraham, don't kill him. There's a ram. Abraham goes, takes his son off the altar, grabs uh, the ram, puts it on the altar and kills it. And God provides a sacrifice. Abraham had already been justified by his faith. But God looked at Abraham putting his son on the altar and says, Abraham, now I see that you truly believe and I'm going to bless you because you did not withhold your son from me. It was works that were verifying the authenticity of Abraham's faith. And then he, James lists Rahab. Now, Rahab's one of the weirdest stories in the Bible, really complicated. If you want to get a, co a coffee this week and talk about the story of Rahab, I would love to. It's a complicated, messy story. 
But essentially, there's a pagan woman in the town of Jericho who is a prostitute, and God's people are coming to scout out the city because God has commanded them to take the city of Jericho. And Rahab, the prostitute, pagan, houses the people of God and says, I'm going to get you out of the city. But when I do, I want you to remember me and allow me to be part of your faith community when you come back. So here's a prostitute who says, I see that your God's the real deal. And when you come back, I want to follow him and I want to be among you and uh, among your people. And so James uses her as an example of living faith and work. She risks her life to hide these people of God. And, uh, And these are validating their faith works validate faith. And so at the end, James says, for as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. I'm going to blow through through this last part, but you got to hear the applications for this. Since works verify, I think a couple of things are true. Number one, every Christ follower and every church can and do, should do something. It's not enough to just come to church every Sunday. It's not enough. Um, It's not enough. I had a friend named Riley who used to say, some of these church people need to get off their blessed assurance and get to work. I always thought that was pretty good. (laughs) Micah 6.8 says, he has told you, oh man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you? To do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Now here's the problem. And Hope and and Ari, I'm going to skip through that oath of compassionate service. I'm going to post that on social media later. Mercy, mercy can become unjust if it robs people of human dignity. A lot of things today masquerading as compassion and justice are not because they're robbing people of human dignity and creating a culture of dependence that is not good nor biblical. Mercy can be unjust if it robs human dignity, if it's more about the one serving than the one being served, and if it creates dependence and does long-term harm. There are some guiding principles called the oath of compassionate service that guide us as a church and how we will do acts of justice. On the simplest level, we won't go through them, but here's the thing that we are deeply committed to as a church. Our motto is bringing Charlestown together around the gospel. We want to do shoulder-to-shoulder events as opposed to -to face-to-face events where we are the privileged and you are the needy, where we are the haves and you are the have-nots. We will not do events like this. This is why we do food trucks and why we do photography projects and why we sponsor Little League. We want to come alongside rather than do transactional ministry that makes people depend on us and treat us like we're the Savior. We want people to understand, as Jesus has loved us, we love you. And we will be better doing this thing together than if we are the ones with the goods. And I think that is what James is getting at here. The second thing, every Christ follower should do something. You all have a gift. Um, You all have something you're really, God has saved you to do. I've heard Howard before share what he's passionate about, and it's unique. I've heard Drew share something that he's interested in to serve Jesus, and it's unique. I know Teresa is a one in a seven billion kind of a human being and God has shaped her to do things that are so unique to the body. Everybody should do something. But the second thing is nobody can do everything. 
No church, no Christian can do everything. So I want to give you something. If you write down notes, I want to give you something that, uh, especially for you people who are people pleasers in the room, that will be really helpful. Need does not always constitute call. Need does not always equal call. So finding out what you should do and what we should do requires listening to God and our neighbors, assessing our gifts. It's where our local predicament meets our collective potential. It's where what's broken in Charlestown meets what we have in the room. First Church can do some things that we can't do. St. John's can do some things that we can't do, and we can do some things that they can't do, and you can do some things that you can't do, and vice versa, right? Nobody can do everything. We examine our passions, our resources, our connections, and we do these things with excellence and with follow-through. There is never, I think we have a quote for this, there's never enough time to do everything you want to do, but there's always enough time to do the work that God is calling you to do. Of course, my friend Neil's wife used to tell him, Neil, you have a thousand good ideas a day, but only a couple of them are God ideas. And you need to begin to sift through the good ideas and the God ideas and begin to only tackle the God ideas. Some of us need to get a correct assessment of what are God's ideas. And then the last thing I want to tell you is we need to keep the main thing the main thing. We live in a world right now where social justice is the beat of our culture. Oh, you got to do social justice. If you're not doing social justice, then you're not woke. And you've got to be passionate about these things that people are passionate about. And as Christ followers, if we're not careful, we can create a tack on, churches can, to, oh, we preach the gospel, but we also do this other stuff. And a church is validated by how well it does this other stuff. Did it show up at this prayer gathering after this tragedy? Did we talk about these things? Did our church post this thing on social media? And if we didn't, well, we might get canceled or we're not woke or whatever. And when we do that, when we add all of this social gospel stuff into the gospel, then we've done nothing more than create another idol and been as guilty as that crazy church of saying, if you don't get baptized within so many hours of your salvation, then it didn't stick. It is Christ alone. It is faith alone. It is scripture alone. It is grace alone that saves us. We cannot add anything to it. We have to keep the main thing, the main thing. Good works as a requirement to be saved for a church or a Christian is a false gospel. If you get good deeds without good news, you become do-gooders. There's a lot of churches wasting a lot of time and energy doing good stuff and never sharing the gospel. The hope for salvation is the gospel. It's Christ, that Christ loves sinful people and he died on the cross to take the weight of sin off of them and offer them salvation and relationship with God. Good deeds without good news is just a bunch of do-gooders and it becomes about us and it's short-sighted and it forgets that there's eternity and it is a waste of kingdom resources and opportunities. Look, we're renting, we rented food trucks for Charlestown High at the end of the school year. We're renting food trucks in the next week or two for teachers. All of that will be there for all of it and we will seek to share the gospel where we can with teachers and with staff. We don't do good works without trying to also share good news. Good news without good deeds. Churches that just are all preaching and no serving. Good news without good deeds is fundamentalism. It is insular and it is so heavenly minded that it is no earthly good. 
But good news with good deeds is the work of Christ. Christ would go into a neighborhood. He would say the kingdom of God is here. He would heal the blind. He would heal the sick. He would heal the lame. He even raised the dead a few times. All of it as a platform to then share the gospel. And that was why Jesus did miracles, was to proclaim the gospel. And he didn't always heal every single person. Sometimes he would go in and heal some of the people, but it was always a platform to share the gospel. So let me give you four questions and we're done. Close your eyes for 15 seconds. I want you to think of a person or group of people that you are passionate about. It might be orphans, like James said. It could be like foster care. It might be single moms. It might be widows. It might be the addicted. Man, that is part of our local predicament in Charlestown. You can't walk this neighborhood and not see someone at times who's struggling with addiction. It's very real and personal. It might be human trafficking. Your passion, your group that you're passionate about might be townies. (laughs) Honestly, that's one of my, man. I, I long for the day where hundreds and hundreds of Charlestown townies come to know Christ and be in relationship with Christ. It might be young people. Some of you are really passionate about the teenagers who are here in our church and love seeing them serve and love seeing them be here and love seeing Hope and Ari clown around on Sundays after we get done. Like that might be your passion. It might be something else. It might be a neighbor or a person. Let me ask you a couple questions. You can open your eyes. How many of you have somebody in your mind? Thumbs up. Got somebody or some group of people? Okay. If you have a group and not a person, how many of those people, what percentage of those people did Jesus die for? All of them. Yep, good. All right. You got the first one right. All right. Second question. What percentage of those people would you like to see know Christ? I know. It's crazy, right? All of them. I'd like to see them all know Christ too. Good. You're two for two. Um, In this season of your life, what is one opportunity that you believe is from God that you need to say yes to in ministering to them? Is there one thing that you need to begin to say yes to in ministering to them? Maybe one person, maybe one ministry, maybe one task. And then the last question. In this season of your life, what is one opportunity that you need to say no to to better better minister to those people? See, sometimes, I'll give you an example. I told somebody the other day, they were like, well, should this person come to Christ Church Charlestown? They live in a different neighborhood. I was like, they're welcome to come, but we'll never serve their neighborhood. We'll never serve another town like four neighborhoods over. They were like, well, why not? Don't you love that neighborhood? I was like, I do, but we love this neighborhood. And the need is so great in this neighborhood that we want to share the gospel here that we say no to other things. There are people and tasks and ministries that Christ may call you to that you've got to say yes to, that's good religion, and that's going to force you to have to say no to some other things, and that is good religion. Let me pray, and we'll be done. God, we thank you for your word. We pray that we would be not just hearers, but doers. I pray that our good religion would look like tame tongue, ministering hands, pure hearts. And God, I pray that you would put in our heart, if we truly believe that, we, that you died for everyone, if we truly believe that everyone needs a chance to say yes or no to Jesus, God, I pray we would say yes to some things and no to some things. Can't do everything. God, help us do what we can. 
Uh, Lord, I pray for anyone in the room or anyone watching online today who maybe doesn't have relationship with Christ. God, what they need is not to do good religion or justice or any of that. What they need is to turn in faith and ask Christ to come into their life. We need to ask you, Lord, to forgive their sin. We need to ask you to be the boss of their life, to come and live in them, to be, for them to be surrendered to you all in with Jesus. And Lord, I pray that anyone watching a line or anyone in the room who's never begun a relationship with you, God, today they would just in their hearts ask you, God, will you come into my life? Will you forgive me? Will you be my savior? And God, I thank you. There's no magic formulas on that. And there's no hoops we have to jump through ever. God, if we do that, our lives will begin to reflect that belief. And Lord, I pray that we would encourage people as they do that. Thank you that we've gotten to see that in our church over and over and over. We love you. We bless you. We want to walk out of here and honor you with how we live. In Jesus' name, amen.